0: This is Steve Lawson, and I want to welcome you to Men Who Rock the World. It's an exciting podcast that studies the lives and the legacies of great men in centuries past who have been used by God to turn the world upside down. Uh, These men are reformers. They're Puritans. They are preachers during the Great Awakening. Uh, They have been used even during the evangelical era. And so, I want to be able to, to introduce you to them and for you to come under the Uh, the influence of their lives. Um, I have had the opportunity to write biographies uh, on many of these men and to spend a year just researching and and learning about how God used them so mightily. I have the opportunity to to lecture in seminaries and to speak uh, in church pulpits on on these great men, and I've even visited on-site leading tour groups where really history was made. The importance of knowing church history cannot be overstated. Martin Lloyd-Jones once said that other than the Bible itself and theology, that the most important thing that a Christian should know is church history. So I want you to join me in this podcast in learning how these great men of faith were so greatly used. God bless you. Well, what a joy it is uh, to be with you today. And we're going to talk about William Tyndale. And if you were to ask me who is my favorite reformer, that's, that's a hard um, answer to come by. It's almost like who's your favorite child. Um, we could go with the boldness of Martin Luther. We could go with the brilliance of John Calvin. Uh, the brashness of John Knox. But for me, my favorite reformer Is William Tyndale and the reason I love William Tyndale is he made a contribution that Calvin never made he produced a Bible in the language of his people and he made a commitment that Luther and Calvin never made he died as a martyr for the gospel of Jesus Christ and so I think he is someone who's very worthy of our focus for this lecture Now, what is remarkable about William Tyndale is that three lines intersect in this one life, and any one of these three would set him apart as perhaps the man of the century. But all three come together in William Tyndale. First of all, he was the father of the English Reformation, When you study the Reformation, and we love the Reformation, do we not? Because it was a back-to-the-Bible movement and a recovery of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Uh, The man who was most responsible for the English Reformation is undoubtedly William Tyndale. But more than that, he was the father of the English Bible. And that is what really pushed him to become the leader of the Reformation. Uh, John Wycliffe had already translated the Bible uh, into English, but it was from the Latin, uh, the Latin Vulgate. So it was uh, an inferior translation, really. And William Tyndale is the first man to have uh, the Greek and the Hebrew and to do a direct translation from the original languages. So he's the father of the English Reformation. He's the father of the English Bible. And then, third, he is the father of the modern English language. Every line that Tyndale translated, he is standardizing the English language that you and I speak. Uh, At this point, there is no English dictionary. There will not be an English dictionary until over 150 years later, in 1703. And William Tyndale is literally minting and coining the language that you and I speak. And that's an amazing thing. And the first English dictionary that there ever really was, was by William Tyndale, a glossary at the end of Genesis and Exodus and Leviticus, as he is, he is coining words that have never been used before, uh, ark, a scapegoat. Jehovah, and he has to define these words, and so he really becomes the father of the English dictionary as well. So all these lines intersect in this one man, and his imprint upon Western civilization is staggering. Uh, Today, we would say the international language of business is English. If you want to do business abroad, you have to speak the English language, or you'll be left behind. And it is actually William Tyndale's English language that we use. So what can we say about him? John Fox, who wrote Fox's Book of Martyrs, uh, called him the Apostle of England. That's a staggering statement. And J.H. Merle Dubonnet, who was the great Reformation historian, called Uh, Tyndale, the mighty mainspring of the Reformation. In other other words, the entire English Reformation is set in motion by William Tyndale. Uh, Leland Riken has said that he was a a linguistic genius whose expertise in multiple languages dazzled the scholarly world, unquote. It would be almost impossible for us to capture the brilliance of William Tyndale. He he was not only an Oxford graduate with two degrees, but he was proficient at the highest level in eight languages. In fact, not only could he write them, he could speak them, and he could speak those eight languages so well that if you heard him speak in your language, you would assume he grew up next door to you. He was just a linguistic genius. And Brian Edwards has called uh, Tyndale the heart of the Reformation in England. He goes on to say, in fact, he was the Reformation in England. So what an extraordinary figure he is. Um, We need to set the context uh, for the time in which William Tyndale entered into the world in order to really appreciate the heroic um endeavor that he undertook. It, it was a day that you and I could scarcely imagine in that it was a day shrouded with spiritual darkness over all of England. It, it was a day so dark that there were 20,000 Catholic priests who knew nothing of the Bible, who could not even translate Scripture out of the Latin, who would preach in Latin Uh, The people would not understand Latin, and people would come to a worship service and not even understand the language in which the service is being conducted. In 1401, there was passed legislation by parliament known as the burning of heretics. Then a person would be burned at the stake if it was found out that you had an English translation of the Bible, or if you were teaching or preaching in the English language, You would be burned publicly at the stake. And in 1408, there was passed what is known as the Constitutions of Oxford. And in the Constitutions of Oxford, the Archbishop of Canterbury wrote It is a dangerous thing to translate the text of the Holy Scripture out of one tongue into another. For in the translation, the same sense is not always easily kept. Well, he is right. It is a challenge to go from one language to the next, but it can be done. And it had already been done in the Catholic Church when they translated the Bible um, out of the Greek and the Hebrew into Latin. So they already had a translation that was in another language. And yet um, the archbishop is really just stonewalling the entire issue. He goes on to say in the Constitutions of Oxford, We therefore decree and ordain that no man hereafter by his own authority translate any text of Scripture into English. No man can read any such book in part or in whole. It called for the death penalty if you were found to have any translation of the Bible in the English language. And in fact, in 1519, there were seven Lollards. Those were preachers who had been sent out in the tradition of Wycliffe to preach the gospel in the English language throughout England. Uh, there were seven of them who were burned at the stake simply for teaching their children the Lord's Prayer in English. So it was a suffocating time spiritually in which spiritual ignorance at the highest level um, held England in a death grip. And it was into such a setting that God raised up William Tyndale. It was not the best of times and the worst of times. It was just the worst of times, period. But the darker the night, the brighter the light. And as William Tyndale would translate the Bible into the English language in the darkness of that day, the gospel of Jesus Christ would shine the brightest. So I'd like to walk us through the life of William Tyndale. I'd like for you to know when he lived and where he lived and what he did and, and how he did it, because he is, a, he is a true champion of the faith. When you grow up, you need to name your children William Tyndale, just to remember his, his contribution. He was born we think in 1494 back then people were not born in hospitals where their their uh, delivery date was written down and so as best we can determine the year is 1494 just to put that in historical context luther would nail his 95 theses to the wittenberg door 1517 Uh, calvin would enter geneva in 1536 And so he is just a little bit ahead of those times as far as when he was born. He was born in the western part of England near Wales uh, of a family that they were landowners, they were farmers. Uh, They had some means and some resources enough to be able to send their son, their brilliant son, William, to Oxford when at that time, Oxford was the leading educational institution in the land. And as Tyndale goes to Oxford, he enters at age 12. Uh, That was not unusual for that time. It was almost like entering into a a preparatory school that would prepare you for higher education. Um, He would be a student there at Oxford for a decade, for the next 10 years. Uh, he would receive a bachelor's degree in 1512. He would receive um, a master's degree in, in in 1515. And he made the comment that there was never any exposure to the Bible. In fact, Oxford did everything that they could to prevent you from studying the Bible. And they laid a groundwork for some eight or nine years. Of false philosophies and false religion, of course, fostered by the Roman Catholic Church. And it would only be after eight or nine years that they would allow you to study or read the Bible, but it was only after they had already brainwashed you and after they had already given you false worldviews and false philosophies. And so William Tyndale was educated in a what we would call today a humanistic, secular uh, education. After he graduated from Oxford with a, a master's degree and had demonstrated his brilliance, he went to Cambridge. Uh, Cambridge was the other leading institution, educational institution of, of England. And in 1516, he enters Cambridge for further study, and there he comes across what we would call today a small group Bible study. Uh, it was known as, the, as really Little Germany because they were reading Martin Luther's works that had come across the English Channel. They were meeting in a, what would be like a Starbucks uh, coffee shop known as the White Horse Inn. And they would sit there and discuss Reformed theology. Uh, They would discuss biblical theology, and they could clearly see the contrast between what they had been hearing in church and what they had been told in school, yet what the scripture was so clearly teaching. And out of this little small group Bible study, there would be nine martyrs the greatest preacher of the English Reformation, Hugh Latimer, the greatest theologian of the English Reformation, Nicholas Ridley, uh, the architect of the English Reformation, Thomas Cranmer. But also in this small group Bible study was William Tyndale, who would become the engine that would be driving the English Reformation through his translation efforts. Well, it is at that time that Tyndale comes to saving faith in Jesus Christ. He's had exposure to the truth, to the light, and he is brought into saving relationship with God through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. A whole new world has has opened up for him. It's like what Martin Luther said when he was converted in 1519, that once he saw the truth of the gospel, the whole Bible changed in the way that he saw it. Well, a similar experience for Tyndale. And he realizes that he needs personal time to be able to, to now re-educate himself and to restudy the Bible. So he withdraws from Cambridge and he goes back to his, his hometown area, Gloucestershire, which is, again, on the western, uh, close to the western border of, of England. And there he works on a large estate for a very wealthy man, a Sir John Walsh and there serves as his personal secretary, uh, serves as his personal chaplain, and serves as the tutor for his children. And it gives him time, buys him time to study more intently the Word of God and be able to connect together uh, the full counsel of God and sound doctrine. And he begins to preach, and he begins to preach in a, a small congregation. And he comes to the realization that all of England must be lost, that the entire nation virtually must be separated from God. And there would be only one way that England could be reached with the gospel, and it would be for them to have a Bible in the language that they speak, to be able to read a Bible, to be able to come to church and hear a preacher preach from the English language and to be able to sit in church and to hear the word preached and to, and to process that and to apply that to your life. Well, as Tyndale is coming to this realization, because he's working on this very prosperous estate, um, there would be clergy from the Catholic Church who would come and have dinner. And in the midst of one of these dinners, there was uh, a somewhat heated discussion took place at dinner uh, over the veracity of the Word of God and the authority of the Pope. And this Catholic priest made the staggering statement that we had rather have what the Pope has to say than what the law of God has to say. Well, that punched Wycliffe's hot button. And he said at that point, he was determined that a plowboy in the field would know more of the Word of God than the Pope in Rome, that he would be a man on a mission, that he would give his linguistic skills to interpreting the Bible into the English language something that had never been done before. Out of the original Greek and out of the original Hebrew, and to give the English-speaking world an accurate translation of the Bible that was straightforward, that was true to the text, and that was easily read and heard. So, William Tyndale goes to London because he would have to have permission from the Bishop of London to be able to translate the Bible into the language of their people. Uh, it would, you, he would receive the death penalty if he was to do this in an unauthorized manner. Well, when he goes to the Bishop of London, he assumed he would have a quick yes. Who would, who would possibly say no to such a project as this? He was immediately rejected because across the English Channel as Germany, Saxony, now has a German Bible that Martin Luther has translated uh, the New Testament and parts of the old. Um, There has been quite a social upheaval and it led to what was known as the Peasants' Revolt. And the Bishop of London was fearful that the same thing would happen in England, that, that, that if the people have the truth, and realize they've been lied to all these years. The people will rise up, and we who are in positions of authority will lose our power. And so Tyndale was denied permission to translate the Bible into the English language. So he stays in London for a short period of time, no more than a year, and he preaches in various places. And there is a Christian businessman who hears him preach, and hears and learns of his desire to translate the Bible into the English language. And this godly, now Protestant, Reformed businessman says, I will financially support you for this endeavor. So he and a handful of others pooled their resources together And they said, we will stand with you, and we will free you up to do this translation project. Well, Tyndale had come to the realization that such a work could never take place in England, that it would be far too dangerous. And so at age 30, William Tyndale realized he must leave England never to return, He must leave England and never to marry, and go to the continent of Europe and undertake this dangerous task of translating the Bible into the English language. And when he sets out, and this is so remarkable, when he sets out to do this task, there was no church that stood with him. There were no elders that laid hands on him. There was no denomination that commissioned him. There was no missions agency that sent him out. William Tyndale was a one-man SWAT team for the Lord. He was a committee of one, and he decided by himself that he will translate the Bible into the English language And he would really become like Athanasius, contra mundum, against the world. He would be like what Martin Luther would become, one man against the world. And so William Tyndale left England as an outlaw of the government of England. And with every verse that he would translate, he was committing a capital crime against the king of England, who happened to be Henry VIII. Yes, that Henry VIII, with all the wives that he had. And so Tyndale leaves England, as I said, never to return. And as he leaves, he goes to Germany. And he goes to Germany, and there he um, goes uh, first uh, to... Cologne, he goes to Cologne really after he first goes to Wittenberg. He wants to go to Wittenberg where Martin Luther is so he can sharpen his knowledge of Hebrew. Very few people in all of Europe even knew Hebrew. I mean, there were not Hebrew uh, professors out and about, except maybe just a handful, like at the University of Wittenberg. There was not one single Hebrew professor in the entire nation of England. That's how hard it was to be able to try to crack the nut of the Old Testament from the original language. And so there at the University of Wittenberg, um, Tyndale um, begins to study Hebrew, and it'll take him several years before he can master it. Uh, He also sharpens his knowledge of Greek as Philip Melanchthon, who was... um, Martin Luther's right-hand man was very proficient in the Greek language, and so it was really a, an iron sharpening iron time for Tyndale. He was there for a very brief period of time, but he he was there, and he had exposure to really imbibe the, the spirit of the Reformation. From there, he goes to Cologne, Germany, which was the largest city in all of Germany, and his reasoning was, as a foreigner from England who looks different, sounds different, conducts himself different from the native people, it would be easiest for him to remain anonymous in a large city where there would be people from other countries passing through. It's also in Cologne would be the largest Catholic church. And so under the shadow of the largest Catholic church in Germany, he finds a printer. And in order to print what he will translate, it will not only cost Tyndale his life if he's caught, it will cost the printer his life if he's caught. Well, he finds a man to print the New Testament, and he has translated it and has done really a remarkable job doing so. Some of the workers in the print shop one evening went to a local tavern and had uh, a little too much to drink, and they began to talk very openly and freely. And it was overheard in the tavern what the project was, and there were those who were adamantly opposed to Luther and the Reformation, and they purposed that they would raid the print shop and take the entirety of Tyndale's translation of the New Testament. Well, Tyndale caught wind of this, and in the providence of God, he races to the print shop, gets there before the raid can occur, gathers up all of his works, and they had gotten as far as Matthew chapter 22, I think about verse 13. They had just begun printing the New Testament. He gathers up his work, flees in the middle of the night, and gets on a ship and goes down the Rhine River. He goes down the Rhine River to the one city that would be most receptive to his project, the city of Worms, Germany. It was at Worms, Germany that Luther stood his heresy trial in 1521, where Luther made his great stand, where he said, my conscience is bound to the word of God. I can do no other. Here I stand. God help me. Tyndale goes to that very same town a very short time after Luther. And he finds a publisher, a printer, who is willing to take on the task. Now, I want you to think about this. In order for this project to come about, there are several factors that have to fall into place. And among those factors are these. It'll have to be in a city that's on a river because there are no trucks and there's no trains to distribute the product, these Bibles that will be printed. They're going to have to be put on ships. And it's the only way to transport this much, uh, this many Bibles. A second, the river will have to flow into the ocean because these are to be sent to England and to Scotland. So it's going to have to be a river that's going to flow in essence, into the North Sea, where an international trade route can take them to England, where German Lutheran businessmen will be ready to buy them and receive them, begin to sell and distribute them. There will also have to be forests nearby so that trees can be harvested, so that they can make enough paper to print some 3,000 New Testaments. And so, there would have to be also um, uh, uh, a a printing uh, shop large enough to undertake this task. And so, in Worms, all of these lines intersected and lined up. And so, the New Testament was printed, 1526. 1526. And Tyndale smuggled these Bibles into England by hiding them in bales of cotton. And so large bales of cotton became stuffed with his Bibles. Uh, They were relatively smaller so that in England they could be carried in a woman's pocketbook or inside the pocket of a man's overcoat. And so they were put into these bales of cotton and taken out onto the North Sea. And there, as they arrive in, in England, <laughs> this is like diamonds falling out of the sky. Uh, this is a treasure beyond all treasures, that there is now a Bible in the English language, and it is, this is the first Bible that's ever been printed with movable type also. Uh, Wickless versions were all hand-copied, and the penmanship was not always easy to read. But now this is so accessible and readable to the English-speaking world. And so now farmers and blacksmiths and hat makers and people from all kinds of vocational backgrounds, they begin to buy up Tyndale's Bible and it is a treasure beyond treasures. As families would gather together and a father would read the Bible to to their people, to their families. Well, the word eventually got out. Uh, The bishop of London heard about this, and so he went to St. Paul's cross and preached a scathing sermon publicly against this translation and claimed that there were 2,000 errors in it and that only a heretic could have done the work and only a fool would buy it. And he began to buy up as many copies copies as he could. The Catholic Church is trying to buy them up just so that they won't be in circulation. Well, there was another Christian businessman who heard about this and he rushed in and with he, his resources, he bought up all the other Bibles before They could buy up all the other Bibles and funneled the money back to where Tyndale was in essence to help finance the work that Tyndale is doing. And again, it's just the providence of God causing all this to come together for good. Well, as the work continues, um, the word now comes to the King of England, what's taking place. And he sends out word that Tyndale must be found and Tyndale must be stopped. And so there is a a series of men who are commissioned uh, to be sent out from England to go to Europe to undertake a manhunt for the fugitive Tyndale. And every attempt until the last attempt failed. In fact, one attempt, multiple letters were sent to various cities, hoping that one of them somehow would find their way to Tyndale, which it did. And a secret meeting was arranged between Tyndale and this emissary of the King of England. And the emissary said that the King of England has promised to pay your salary and to give you safe travel back to England if you will stop your translating work and just return to your mother land." Well, Tyndale, of course, knew it was a trap. And so he said, "I will do this. I will come back to England if." the king will appoint someone else to translate the Bible into English. Well, of course, the king would not fall for that. And this emissary, as he tried to describe Tyndale, when he returned back to England, he said, he is a man who sings only one note. Like a violin player, only has one string. He has no other string to play. He is a one-track-minded man, William Tyndale, Um he is pouring his entire life energy into translating this Bible into the English language. Well, Sir Thomas More, who was a part of the hierarchy of the church that is there in England, um, did everything he could to discredit Tyndale. He, he wrote a book in which he called Tyndale um, the hellhound, in the devil's kennels, called him a second coming of Judas. Called him the heretic of all heretics, and did everything that he could to drag the name of Tyndale through the mud. That would not deter Tyndale. He was a man on a mission. He he will not be denied. He will not be stopped as long as he has life's breath in him. He is now ready to translate the Bible into uh, the, the Old Testament into English. So he begins with the Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. It takes him about a year to translate those five books. But he has to stay on the move because he has to be anonymous. He, he can't be found. He's doing all this work in, in back closets and in back rooms of British merchants who are doing business on the continent and who are sympathetic to the cause of the Reformation. And, and Tyndale cannot be exposed. In fact, this is an interesting fact. We only have two portraits of, of, of Tyndale uh, that have survived that era, and both of them were painted after he died because he could not allow anyone to know what his face looked like. Um, He was that hated, and he was that hunted down uh, by the king of England. So, to stay on the move, he boards a ship. After translating for a year Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, he boards a ship to move out into the sea and then come down the Elbe River and the ship that he is on is, uh, is overtaken with a horrible storm, uh, so um, overpowering that the ship that Tyndale is on goes down, suffers shipwreck. And with that, all of Tyndale's books, dictionaries, study tools, and yes, the first five books of the Old Testament go down to the bottom of the sea. Uh, A Christian today would probably say, well it must just not be God's will for me. That that's a closed door from God and I'll just go about my life in another direction. Not Tyndale. Tyndale will not be deterred. He will not be turned to the left nor to the right. He will continue to plow ahead. And he goes down the Elbe River, and he gets off the ship, he settles down, and he spends the next 10 months retranslating Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Um, his resilience, his endurance, his steadfastness is virtually unparalleled. And that's what I love about Tyndale. He was a man of sacrifice. He was a man willing to take the path of greatest resistance to advance the gospel of Jesus Christ and the Word of God. And so as he translates these first five books in the Old Testament, he, he, he actually writes an introduction to each book, like what we have in study Bibles today. He puts side margin notes like we have in study Bibles, margins at the bottom of the page. He he divides out books in the Bible by literary units. He has a glossary at the end of these books that will help define the words that are being used in these books. It's, It's really the first study Bible that there ever was. And he then translates the book of Jonah of all books because he believed the message of Jonah must be preached in every pulpit in England. Forty days and Nineveh will be destroyed. Forty days in London will be destroyed. Forty days in Oxford and Cambridge will be destroyed. Um, Though he had the brilliant mind of a linguistic scholar, he had the burning heart of a prophet. And he wanted the message of the Word of God and the call to repentance to England to be blown as from a trumpet. He also will translate the rest of the historical books in the Old Testament. So the Pentateuch, the historical books, and then Jonah. Just to fast forward a bit, we come to the year 1534. 1534. And he goes to Antwerp. And there is a Christian businessman who has a large house, and other Christian businessmen live in this house. And they have somewhat fellowship together. And they take in Tyndale so he can be in the back room and continue his work. And so Tyndale retranslates the New Testament that he had done in 1526. So now, eight years later, he makes some 3,000 to 4,000 edits. He, He is an obsessive perfectionist. This must be the most precise translation of the Bible that there can possibly be, and it must be readable, it must be simple, yet straightforward. He does such an extraordinary job that in 1611, when committees of scholars translate the King James Version of the Bible, the reality is 90% of the King James Bible was done by one man, William Tyndale. 90% of the New Testament, it's estimated 75% of both Old and New Testament, Tyndale's work could not be improved upon by large committees of scholars who were involved in translating the Bible long after he had died. And so he produces a second version of the New Testament, 1534. Then the next year, 1535, he makes some more edits. He, he, he's just not content with just a good translation is not good enough. It's got to be the best. And so he upgrades it yet again. And so he is ready to continue now working on the Old Testament when something very tragic occurs. Back in England, there is a very wealthy man. His last name is Phillips, who gave to his son, Harry Phillips, a vast, amount of money to take to London to pay off his debts and to put in to safe keeping. And this young man was a fool, and he began to gamble, and he lost his father's entire estate. There's no way he can face his father. The church In England finds out about this and they call for him and they cut a deal with him if you will leave England if you will go to Europe if you will find Tyndale and if you will have him arrested and have him handed over to the authorities and have him put into prison, and have him put to death, then we will reach into the church's coffers, and we will restore all the money that you lost. Well, it was a deal that Harry Phillips could not resist. And so Harry Phillips cut a deal with the devil, just like Judas, for money. And left England and went on a search for Tyndale. It's been ten years since Tyndale left. He's Tyndale's now forty years old. Through various contacts and various networking, he finds out where Tyndale is. He's with these English merchants who are all living in this one house, and he establishes some contacts. And he befriends Tyndale. And the other businessmen who had some street smarts about them said, we don't feel good about this man. We we think you should keep your distance from him. And there was maybe a little naivete about Tyndale. And he allows himself to be drawn into this relationship with Harry Phillips. And Harry Phillips sets the trap. He says, Let's go for a walk. And so they leave the house, the safety of the house, and they walk down a very narrow corridor. And Harry Phillips says, You go first. So Tyndale goes first. Phillips comes in behind him and points over his head. Because he has authorities on the other side of the wall. And behind the corner. And they jump out and they arrest Tyndale. And after this long decade of hiding and being a man really on the run, he is finally captured. John Rogers, who had been led to Christ by Tyndale, who was living in this same house, he'd been a Catholic priest, Um. John Rogers, who was now the assistant to William Tyndale, in a strange providence, he would be the first martyr burned at the stake by Bloody Mary years later, 1555. Um, John Rogers runs back to the house and gathers up all of Tyndale's work and escapes in the night with his work before the authorities could confiscate it. William Tyndale is taken to what is today uh, Belgium, just outside of what is today Brussels. He is stuffed into a castle that is really like uh, a prison, surrounded by a moat, thick walls, high walls, and he is held there for 18 months. He is held there for exactly 500 days. There he lives in the, in the cold, um, battles all kinds of illnesses, is forced to live in darkness. His only request was would someone please bring me a, a lamp, in my Hebrew dictionary, and my Hebrew copy of the Old Testament? And let me continue to study. Well, the time comes now for his trial, which is a mockery of justice. And they bring the charges against Tyndale. And his charges are sixfold. They are, number one, you believe in justification by faith alone. You are a heretic. You believe in the bondage of the human will by sin. You're a heretic. You believe that Christians should not pray to saints. You're a heretic. And one by one by one, they conduct really what would be a heresy trial. They condemn uh, Tyndale. And they put him through the mockery of being stripped of his priesthood. He had never joined a monastic order, but he had been ordained as a priest. And so he will now be excommunicated for the reason so that he can be turned over to the government to be put to death. So, he goes through this mockery of a, of a, of a ceremony where they take glass sharp glass, and they scrape His hands so they bleed, signifying that the anointing of the Holy Spirit is now removed from you. They put a robe on Him, then take it off, signifying that you are no longer a priest, multiple other things. They then hand Him over to the authorities, to to be put to death, just like the Pharisees and the Sanhedrin did with Jesus when they handed him over to Pontius Pilate. And so the government has its trial, and they condemn him to death. So the time has come for the end of Tyndale. Uh, They lead him to a stake in a public setting, They put a noose around his neck, which was really a chain around his neck. They put kindling and wood and brushwood all around him and encase him in wood. And then they take gunpowder and they throw gunpowder into all this. They give the sign for the henchman to hang him. And so they hang him by the neck. Then they ignite the flames and they lower his dead body into the flames. And the gunpowder is ignited. And it blows up his body into so many pieces that there's nothing left to bury. And right before all that happened, his last words. Lord, open the eyes of the king of England. By that he meant open the eyes of Henry VIII that he would see the desperate need that England has for a Bible and their own language. That year was 1536, unknown to Tyndale because he's been in prison for 18 months Miles Coverdale, who was a part of the White Horse Inn and had been an assistant to Tyndale earlier in his translation project, had taken Tyndale's work plus some of his own work, which was very poorly done, by the way, and the year before he is put to death, there is a Coverdale Bible that is now in print. The year after he dies, 1537, John Rogers Um, Cleans up Coverdale's poor translation, picks up his mess, and retranslates scholarly the rest of the Old Testament. It is done so well that the King of England announces in 1538 that there shall be a Bible chained to every pulpit in the land of England. It's known as the Great Bible great Bible because it was so large that uh, a preacher could stand in the pulpit and could see it well enough to preach from it. It would be chained to the pulpit so that no one could ever take it away, so that the people could come during the week and come into the church and read the Bible for themselves and to hear the Word of God as it would be preached. William Tyndale was a true champion of the faith. He he was more than a trailblazer. Uh, He was virtually the trail itself. As he translated the entire New Testament in a scholarly uh, way, as he translated the first five books, and then the historical books, and then Jonah, and as he trains Coverdale and trains Rogers to complete the task. William Tyndale is the man who gave the English-speaking people a Bible. And as he came to the English, as he came to the end of his life, um, he had fulfilled his life's ambition that a plowboy in the field will know more of the Word of God than the Pope in Rome. And so it was. So he is, for me, my favorite Reformer. Though I'm a preacher, and I would be so easy for me to say other preachers like Luther or Calvin or John Knox, the heroic sacrifice that this man made is unprecedented and is unparalleled, and he is worthy, I think, of our esteem and should be an inspiration to all of us of what steadfastness, perseverance and endurance looks like, and to also be willing to stand alone, if necessary, for the cause that you believe to be true. So that's our quick survey of William Tyndale. I see my good friend, Stephen Nichols, standing in the wings. So Stephen, why don't you come on in here, and I'm sure you'll have something to say. I think we're gonna have a break here shortly, but. you know, This is such a compelling story the story of Tyndale. You told it so well, so powerfully. So thank you. Let's give Dr. Lawson just a quick round of applause (laughs) as a thank. Thank Uh, We are going to take a brief moment. We're going to reset. We're going to come back with a time for question and answers. Thanks. Dr. Lawson, we do have a few questions from some of our students here at RBC. So we're going to start with one. Go ahead. You mentioned Tyndale's translation of the book of Jonah. Could you further explain what role that book played for Tyndale's hope for Reformation in England? Certainly. That's a good question. Uh, Tyndale was of the deep persuasion that virtually the entire nation was unconverted and lost and in chains of darkness. And as he had studied and read the book of Jonah, he saw the most extraordinary revival ever recorded in Scripture took place when Jonah went to Nineveh and said, 40 days and Nineveh will be destroyed. And what he longed for was that there would be preachers in England who would be bold and courageous, who would call for the repentance of the nation and that it would begin with the king. And so he translated Jonah so that he would be in essence giving this book in the Bible to be preached. So, 40 days and London will be destroyed. 40 days and, and Yorkshire will be destroyed. Um, and that was his desire. He, he Though he had the scholastic mind of a genius, he had the burning heart of a prophet and a preacher. And that's why he wanted strong preaching of the Bible uh, that would be what God would use to reach the nation with the gospel of of Jesus Christ. And I don't know that I could think of a better book um, especially in the Old Testament. So do you have another question? Yes. Um, So you mentioned a bit about Luther and Wittenberg. Is there anything more to Tyndale's and Luther's relationship? Well what we know is very scant. Um, When he first comes to Germany he goes to Wittenberg. And the clues that we have are interesting. Uh, there's a, a, a register that you would sign as you would come there to Wittenberg and to the university. And we have Tyndale's name inverted, and he has to remain anonymous. So um, by just inverting the syllables of this one name, William Dale 10, um, it's William Tyndale. And so he would be smart enough to, to cover his track. So we know he was, he was there, a high degree of probability. The other reference, interestingly enough, comes from Sir Thomas More, who was the greatest adversary that uh, Tyndale ever faced, who wrote, I, d- I didn't have time to talk about it really, uh, earlier. He wrote a six-volume, 500,000-word Attack on Luther, on Tyndale, half a million words, and so in that's and that's the second <laughs> volume uh, after the first volumes, and in there he references Tyndale going to Wittenberg. So we we actually have the reference from um, his greatest adversary. And so we're just having to be like Sherlock Holmes and piecing, piecing together clues um, to, to solidify the fact that he was there in Wittenberg and when he would have been in Wittenberg. Beyond that, we don't know about their relationship. We just know, obviously, if he's in Wittenberg, and Wittenberg to this day is a tiny little town, uh, you can't get lost in Wittenberg no matter where you are. Um, that back then it would have been even smaller. And those two would have obviously connected so we have another question we've got all the bright students you know for this dr. Lawson though our context is very different from 16th century England what do we as modern Christians need to glean most from Tyndale's testimony yeah I think number one is the centrality of the Word of God the primacy of the written Word of God And I do think we live in a day in which there's a famine in the land for the hearing of the word of the Lord. Uh, I do know that people are having, all across our nation, are having to drive great distances just to find a church that would have a Bible in the pulpit and that the man would actually preach the Bible rather than get up and entertain and tell stories and on and on and on. So I think what we learn in our day is that the more things change, the more things remain the same, that we live in a nation of extreme spiritual darkness and extreme spiritual apathy, and that um, we need to embody the courage and boldness of William Tyndale, and to be willing to do whatever it takes to get the Word of God out. And what I love about Tyndale, and I mentioned it in the lecture, is that no church sent him out. There was no denomination that supported him. There was no missions agency that sent him out. There were were no elders that laid hands on him. I mean, he just saw the need, and he went and did it. Um, And God surrounded him with with businessmen who who were entrepreneurial and who would stand in the balance with him. Um, the, The only hope for this day, is to come back to the truth of the Word of God. And as it was in Tyndale's day, so it is in our day, that until we have um, a, a, a reestablishment of the Word of God in the churches, you know, we, I mean, we, we'd love to see it in the culture and in the society. If we could just get the Bible back into church, that, that would be a significant step in the right Direction, which makes a university, a college like Reformation Bible College, so distinct um, that it actually is a Bible-based curriculum, and to train people to go out into a real world uh, with real truth from the Bible. So I I think that's what we learned from Tyndale, and and it and it requires resilience. It requires audacity it requires fierce dedication um, in order for the kingdom of god to be advanced and we we need to to realize that it's not going to be an easy task in in our day um, it's not going to happen with just social media blasts and, and and blogs and things like that I mean there, there's got to be the penetration of the people of God taking the message of the word of god into the into the highways and byways, and it's going to require shouting it from the housetops um, to get the, na- the attention of, uh, of the nation, but it's got to begin in the church. In First Peter 4, let judgment begin in the house of God. So, I think that's, that, that's what we can take with us, and, and really the attitude of Tyndale is just to put it in, in a vernacular, whatever it takes. That's what he was prepared to do. I mean, whatever it takes, um, he, he will go the second mile, third mile, fourth mile, fifth mile. He, he'll, he'll go to whatever length to the point of being willing to die as a martyr for the Word of God to advance. So th- that, that's what it's going to require of us in this day. Thank you for joining me on this episode of Men Who Rock the World. If you want to follow us on social media, I can be found at Dr. Stephen J. Lawson or at OnePassion.org. Please join me next week for the next episode of Men Who Rock the World.